Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Tuesday, October 6, 2020. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Notice I didn't ask how any of you were doing because that threw everybody off that I was just so nice enough to ask about how you were doing and then you just had no no answer that was yesterday's it was a terrible strange curveball. opening it was a huge curveball right um so uh this morning 6am uh CNN announces that its poll has Joe Biden up by 16 points 5741 uh this follows the uh NBC News Wall Street Journal poll uh a couple of days ago that had Biden up 14. Um, the reason I mentioned them in tandem is that it's very easy to dismiss one enormous result as an outlier. It is harder to dismiss a second result as an outlier. Some people were looking at the Wall Street Journal NBC poll, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, and saying, well, you know, they're they're cooking the books because this is a poll only of registered voters, not of likely voters. We talked about this yesterday. Uh and uh the NBC and and therefore uh they they're trying to like uh, push Biden's numbers up. Um NBC explained that the reason that they are doing registered rather than likely voters is that the voter enthusiasm and interest and turnout expectations are so high that there will be very little distinction between registered voters and likely voters. And the CNN poll is of likely voters. So we have a registered voter poll at 14 and a likely voter poll at 16. According to the logic of the people who are complaining about the registered voter only poll, the likely voter poll should have been, uh, should have been more trending in Trump's direction. Uh, and it didn't, it went the other way. Now, of course, there are margins of error here and there are questions about who's being surveyed and all of that. But if you want to stand here and say uh, the polls are wrong, you have to then say, look, if the polls are wrong and they're 50% off, that means Biden's, that these two polls are 50% off. That means Biden's ahead by eight that's 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 extinction territory for Trump, and what's more, it's extinction territory on election night for Trump. Meaning, all this expectation that there might be a horribly contested, you know, month or two months after the election, uh, that won't won't be the case because the margin will be so large that uh, that the uh, mail in voting and all of that, uh, there'll be enough trends in the voting on election day and the counts that are have already been done <clears throat> basically to declare uh, Biden the winner and that that'll be the, the end of everything. Okay, so can we examine some of the tools that are being used to uh, create a reality distortion field around this election for people who don't want to believe the polls? So Abe, you found this the other day, Real Clear Politics has a metric that it uses that averages the battleground state polling in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. Um, Arizona, which was not a toss-up state in 2016, but is now somehow, is included in this average. So it just generates 28 days out to the election. In 2016, Hillary Clinton had an average of 4.5 
points over Donald Trump. Today, 28 days out from the election, Joe Biden has an average of 4.2% advantage over Trump in all these states averaged together, um, which translates in this metric to a 0.3 advantage for Donald Trump. Um, That seems, I'm not a Nate, but that seems like bad data analysis to me. If you go over to the New York Times, they do this. If the polls were as wrong as they were in either 2016 or 2012, in 2016, they skewed um, towards Democrats. In 2012, they skewed towards Republicans. And if they were exactly precisely as wrong as they were in the states that they were wrong, and the states have to be isolated. You can't average them all together. That doesn't give you an accurate picture of the electorate. Nevertheless, if they presently now are as wrong as they were in 2016, Donald Trump manages to lose Pennsylvania, um, Michigan, uh, Nebraska too, and Florida. He would still pull out a the narrowest of possible victories in Wisconsin, and he would win Maine second. But he would still lose the election. It would be 309 electoral votes for Joe Biden to 229 for Donald Trump. So even that's not satisfactory. Right. Well, look, sorry, polls are a snapshot in time. So either what we're seeing here, we're either measuring that these two national polls are outlierish and maybe are measuring a a momentary freak out and that there will be a a reversion to the mean over, over time. Or, or they are, or they are representative of a bottom falling out in, in Trump support, which we sort of talked about last week. That the meltdown may be happening, and that, of course, proceed, that was after the debate, but preceded the COVID diagnosis. And um, as I say, even if you, uh, so uh, Hillary was up four point three or four point five in these in this average of these states, and Biden's up four point one. Biden's still up, and uh, part of the thought process over the last four years is that uh, these firms have labored to correct the mistakes that they made in 2016 in oversampling. Uh, Democrats and so that they can get a clearer picture. Now, you can believe, if you wish to, that these businesses, when they are businesses, they are for-profit businesses, these polling firms, uh, unless they're, you know, unless they're done by colleges. But I think even there, you know, a lot of what they do, they contract out to make money from. Uh, If they want to destroy their reputations and therefore injure their capacity to get uh, you know, to have business uh, after the elections, and they do a lot of stuff that isn't politics. These firms, uh, they do a lot of corporate work and product testing and whatever else you might want, and message testing and all of that. Uh, then you can believe that they would that they would do that. Um, I think Gallup, you know, got out of the daily horse race thing in 2016 precisely because they were afraid that they were going to so irreparably damage the Gallup brand that it would um, it would have an effect on all the stuff that they do that isn't merely presidential politics or daily tracking or whatever. Um, and if, if all of this is wrong, this is an extinction-level event for a, you know, a subsector of private industry that does this for a living, 
And I just don't think that they're putting their thumb on the scale uh, that way because it would be penny wise if what you want is Trump to lose and you want to depress Republicans, but pound foolish because you would end up being a joke, you know, like a world historical joke that you were telling everybody that Biden pretty much had this in the bag and then basically Trump, you know, uh, comes through. But I have to say, I mean, I, I agree with you both. But it is thinkable um, that it is wrong because it would be in keeping with, John, what you've commented and what we've all commented on over the, the course of this podcast, which is um, sort of uh, failing institutions and um, eroding competence in um, sort of important organs and bodies um, in the U.S. and, and why uh, people don't trust um, status quo institutions anymore. Right. But I will say this about 2016, as somebody who thought that uh, Trump was going to lose and Hillary was going to win, there was an element of faith in my own reading of this, which is that the, the, the polling actually did not justify the confidence that almost everybody had that Trump, you know, was a sure goner. It it really didn't. Um, Even at the worst moment of the Trump campaign, there were two terrible moments for the Trump campaign, the worst moments. One was uh, his attack on Kazir Khan, the Gold Star father. Uh, and in the wake of that attack and some other things that were going on, including news stories about Ukraine, um, Hillary jumped up to something like, uh, in the polling averages, 11 or 12 points. And then right after the uh, Access Hollywood tape on October 18th of 2016, Hillary was up the largest margin that she was up, which was 7.1 points. Okay, so uh, Kazir Khan was in July or the end of July, something like that. Uh, This was the middle of August. And the best she could do with the Access Hollywood tape, which was maybe the worst story that had been levy had been thrown at any candidate that late in the race ever was up seven and biden has been up more than was up more than seven before the debate last week and according to the polling averages now is close to nine so i bring this up only to say that there was a lot of faith in the idea that well in the end people are just going to say that i can't vote for trump because of all this and then stuff happened, pretty much the, you know, uh, the Comey um, reopening of the investigation uh, at the end of October, and therefore the undecideds broke, broke for Trump. But even then, Hillary was in a worse position than we thought she was. And well, right now, people seem to be doing this in a weird reverse, which is that Trump must be in a better position than the polls are showing him to be. I don't have faith that the polls are telling me the truth because he can't be this badly off. And yet um, that is sort of, again, what people said about Hillary in the reverse, which is 
I don't believe that she's only four points up. Or if she's four points up, she's really solidly four points up or five points up. Or well, this this is why it was so interesting. So because in 2016, Hillary's entire campaign until the Comey announcement was a massive effort at rebranding Hillary, right? She was going to be a historic first. She was going to break the glass ceiling. She was all, she had so much competence, et cetera, et cetera. And the Comey announcement was a reminder to everyone of what most of her career had been, which was this, you know, this skirting the rules, um, a kind of entitlement about whether the rules apply to her. And that reminder uh, totally undermined, undermined the rebranding that had been done pretty successfully up to that point. What's been interesting to watch Trump do in the last 48 hours, talk about an opportunity to rebrand at the end of a campaign, going into the hospital and then reemerging from it, he could have completely upended his narrative. He could have come out humble or at least mimicked humility. He could have said a lot of things. We've talked about some of them on the podcast over the last few days. Um, but what he's doing is weirdly giving himself a Comey moment, right? He's reminding everyone of the very things that they had concerns about in 2016. And he, he has he has played out many of those concerns for voters. And he's doubling down, like, you know, talking to 200,000 200, people in this country have died of a virus. And he's basically like, I beat it. You know, you know, don't don't let it ruin your life. Don't let it dominate. He used the word dominate in his talk when he got back to the White House last night. That is offensive. It's a, it's reminding voters that he doesn't really care about them and that this is about him. Whether or not he actually does care about all those Americans who died, the messaging is a doubling down on Trump's persona that I think is is doing his campaign a huge amount of damage. We might or might not see it in the polls, but it's a reminder to everyone that he's in, he's incapable of growing and learning in the job, as it were. I have a slightly more nuanced take on this, though I share your, your political assessment that this is all in, a net negative for him. Abe said on Friday that this the president's diagnosis would uh, heighten anxieties around this virus in a way that we hadn't seen since the spring. And I was like, nah, probably not. Every, you know, if you're predisposed to COVID anxiety, you're going to be anxious. If you're not, you're not. Um, I was wrong. I think I was wrong. Uh, from my interactions over the course of the last four days, the anxiety is palpable. Um, and it is accentuated as a result of the president's diagnosis when a famous person gets it. You know, it's like Tom Hanks times 13. Like it just kind of brings it all home. And um, that's the sense that we're getting is that the most important issue on everybody's minds is back and is back in a really bad way. And if everybody's focus is on lockdown again, is on COVID again, is on the threat to your health, the threat to your, to the, your prospects, your economic prospects, your social life, your economic life, it's all back. Um, that was probably the worst moment of the presidency for him. And now it's back in the precise same way that it was at the end of spring in the worst possible moment for him. And his response to it is in a way that I really appreciate to say that you need to find a way to navigate this environment, to live your life. This is much in much in the same way that George W. Bush said it, albeit with so much more art that we cannot be hostage to this condition that we have to live through. Now we have to continue to live and and prosper and flourish despite these new challenges, which is a strong and good message to have. And yet one of the things he said yesterday in this video that was produced outside the White House, he landed on the White House long and immediately produced a video that was pumped out. Um, he said something along the lines of, nobody who's a leader would have not done what I did, which is a really kind of mishmash construction for saying something that is a noble impulse, which is that I wanted to provide an example to you of how you can 
lead your live your life in a way that resembles normalcy around these conditions. And yet it was the result of my actions that led me to get COVID, um, which is right. precisely the wrong message that he wants to project. It's exactly what his critics were saying would happen and demonstrates their, their foresight. Uh, so there's just no redemption. But can I just, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I, I it's weird. I, I agree with you both, Christine and Noah. I mean, I think this does um, remind everyone of what they didn't like about Trump at the same time it reinforces the kind of the only core strength he has, which is that he is indefatigable, right? And this is kind of the only card he can play in this situation. He's not compassionate, never was, but he, he can, he can say, you know, I can't be stopped. Uh, therefore you can't be stopped. Um, there's something to that. Uh, as Noah says, the, the way he got it out, you know, was a, a self-defeating uh, mishmash. But aside from but that, I think there's his, something. It wasn't just how he said it. It was what he said it. It was a right. tacit admission that I got COVID as a result of my own recklessness. Well, you're right <clears throat> that there was a very interesting and layered message that he was reaching for, which is uh, be resolute. Uh, there is a disease out there. Uh, it has it has killed a lot of people, and uh, if we're not careful, it could kill a lot more until we get the vaccine. But uh, our our country is, te- you know, you have to get on with your life and do what you can to mitigate the threat, but keep going and earning and prospering and being all that. Okay. Um. That's not really what he said. I mean, he tried to say it. um, And that's why the peculiarity of the dominate, the verb dominate, um, because, you know, the mask resistance, for example, it doesn't dominate your life to wear a mask. The mitigation strategy of a mask is to make it possible for you to live your life and and so the hostility and resistance to it that was has been evinced not only by Trump but by everybody around Trump refusing to wear a mask at the debate, for example, when they're they're in an internal space at the Cleveland Clinic, or refusing to wear a mask during the Amy Coney Barrett uh, event, or whatever. These are this is a refusal uh, to pretend that uh, you know you don't let it dominate your life, but you take account of it and then you. You try to mitigate it or deal with it as best you can. And so um, he's the worst possible messenger for this message. And he's a particularly bad messenger because we don't know whether he's out of the woods yet. I mean, we really don't. And people, I know people who've had this disease and they relapse, you know, after they, they, they have a, you know, they, everybody is saying like, Two or three days from now, he could have a relapse. The steroids could wear off. You know, you get this high feeling from taking uh, from taking medical steroids that that gives people a false sense of you know of um, that they are uh, not only all better but better than they felt in twenty years. And uh, and so he insisted on making this video, and we'll see whether or not by Thursday or Friday um, he will have 
deep cause to have regret making, you know, to uh, to having made it. Well, and there's also a, a friend had texted me last night saying Trump's back at the White House. He's, you know, Hannity. Hannity will be praising him as, you know, Jesus in a minute. But it turns out Hannity praised him as as Churchill, Churchillian, right? And I think that also goes. So I think that that messaging strategy and the use of the word dominance last night and the kind of I'm going to show them how strong I am. We have to be resolute through this crisis. It, it misunderstands. And we've talked about this many times over the last few months. Talking about a virus as if it's a military enemy has its has severe limits when it comes to message, sending out the right message. Because I think when he doesn't wear the mask or he acts like we've got to power through, I mean, it, there, is, there are sort of Churchillian echoes during the bombing, right? Like, But it's not as if Churchill said, don't go to the bomb shelter when the air raid sirens are going Churchill <laughs> spent the war in a bunker yes, exactly. under... Under exactly. Whitehall. I mean, exactly. I've been there, the Churchill yeah. War Rooms. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. The high command of the Brits, they weren't walking around right. on the rubble hmm. of the Blitz. Well, and a virus they is were, not a military they enemy. They mitigate, yeah. And yeah. They, but, but they took seriously the prospect that they could be blown up. That's right. the whole point. It's not. I mean, if you've they, ever heard a Churchill speech from the war, there's a fabulous bar in, in downtown Manhattan on 28th Street called the Churchill Tavern, which just plays uh, Churchill speeches. And you go to the bathroom and when you're, you know, you're standing there relieving yourself, you're privy to a Churchill speech. And it is the most depressing, <laughs> resolute, but the most depressing message you could possibly hear from a leader. This is going to be atrocious. You're meant and to your sober up. Be miserable <laughs> for the next four years. So yeah, I mean, resolve, sure, but resolve to endure the worst circumstances you've ever endured. Right. And I, look, the simple point is that Trump this morning went on Twitter and said, look, it's flu season. You know, 100,000 people die of the flu every year and we don't close the economy down. Well, first of all, 100,000 people don't die of the flu. At the worst, at the worst, the flu has been, you know, at the, the worst flu that we've seen, six, there were 60,000 deaths attributed to the flu. So first of all, it's not 100,000. That's insane. Second of all, 210,000 people have died of, of, of the coronavirus. It was the threat that 200,000 people would die of the virus as brought to Trump in March by Fauci and Dr. Burks and all of that that led him to agree to the lockdown strategy. Now, we can then question whether or not the lockdown strategy worked since the worst, it wasn't the worst case, the worst case scenario was 2 million or whatever, but but since the worst happened and we locked down uh, whatever, but um, uh, he was sufficiently panicked by the thought of 200,000 people dying that he agreed to these measures that he clearly was deeply resistant toward. And it's happened. And now, now he wants to poo-poo it? Now that he's gotten it and 20 people around him have gotten it? And the White House is a hot spot? This is in. This is not, I mean, okay, so uh, I want to go with my, and the analogy I want to share with you in a, in a minute. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about uh, a new podcast called The Rabbi's Husband which uh, I've been on, and I want you to think about going and listening to the rabbi's husband, uh, Mark Gerson, who is gathering the world's most interesting people to discuss their favorite Torah passage. 
There is an inspiring range of guests on the Rabbi's Husband podcast, all of whom are united in their shared love of studying Torah in a contemporary context. Previous guests include Senators Cory Booker, Bill Cassidy, Tom Cotton, and Marco Rubio, Congressman Mike Gallagher, Josh Gottheimer, and Max Rose, Ambassadors Michael Oren and Ron Dermer, Rabbis Matt Gewertz, Jonah Pesner, David Wolpe, Pastors Teo Hayashi, Rick Pino, Samuel Rodriguez, and Robert Stearns, Authors Yossi Klein-Halevi, Sarah Hurwitz, and Brett Stevens, Yale School Law, Yale Law School Dean Heather Gherkin, Yeshiva University President Ari Berman, Hebrew Union College President Andrew Rayfield, NFL players Tiki Barber and Benjamin Watson, and many others, including me. Mark is a man on a mission. The show releases new episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, often two or three at a time, meaning you'll never be at a loss for bite-sized Torah wisdom from the leading political, academic, corporate, medical, and spiritual leaders around the world. Available for download wherever you get your podcasts and on therabbishusband.com. That's Mark Gerson's The Rabbi's Husband. I talked about the um, the the rape and uh, and the vengeance for the for the rape of Dina. Uh, that was my tour. Uh, that was the passage that we discussed on my podcast. It's pretty interesting. Uh, you should give it a listen. Rabbi'shusband.com and wherever podcasts are downloadable. So we've been saying that Trump is the first reality TV president, and even he would sort of acknowledge that you know reality TV gave him the platform from which he was able to launch himself into the stratosphere. And we saw some elements of this yesterday in the taping of this uh, message that he did, where we saw him standing on the on the portico took off his mask. The guy was taking photographs. He then turned around. He came back out, uh, apparently having not, they have not gotten the shot that they wanted. He's saluting the helicopter as it leaves. He turns around. He get, makes the presentation. Very reality show TV that he had to do two takes and have this film and all of that. But I think something has happened, and this may be the reason that this uh, meltdown is either not going to stop or is going to accelerate. If it if it can accelerate beyond polls that have him down, you know, uh, double digits and 14, 15, 16 points. Uh, because it, this move from being a reality TV presidency, which at least is reality, even if it's fake reality, to becoming a soap opera. And what happened on with Trump getting COVID is it was a soap opera plot twist. It is a melodramatic, unreal, shocking development that takes us from the realm of even sort of reality into the sort of like, well, come on, as we keep saying, that's too on the nose or something like that. He gets it. Melania gets it. There's all this confusion. He's flown on a helicopter. He's taken to Walter Reed. They show pictures of him. The people are talking about him the whole time. Uh, there's, you know, other people are getting it and dropping, you know, uh, uh, Kaylee McEnany and the campaign manager and this and that. And um, suddenly we're in the, how sick is the president? Is he sick? Is he, you know, is he going to come back? Is he this? He's leaving. He's coming. This is all melodrama, soap opera melodrama. And while you can say that reality TV is fake, it the patina is reality. And this is real. This is as real as it gets. There is a, there's an outbreak of a deadly virus at the White House, 
but it feels like we are watching a bad TV show, a bad plotted fictional TV show. And that turns him into a cartoon character or it turns him into a slightly ridiculous character and not, not, you know, like the formidable alpha dominating, uh, you know, figure who uh, doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus. He's more like Terrence Howard in Empire or something like that. This is this is not good for him, not only because it reinforces the narrative that uh, Christine is talking about, where we always think about his COVID and his response to COVID, but because we are thinking about him now as though he is not real. And whatever he does as president is no longer a significant factor. The question is, is he sick? Is he coughing? Is he not coughing? Is he going to be at the debate? Is he not going to? It's all him as a as a slightly fictional character, and that is deadly. And I don't mean it's deadly because he's going to get sick and die. I mean it's deadly because it reduces him in size to a figure inside a TV screen rather than the leader of the world. Okay, That's but there- my... But there's there's another way of looking at. It. I think you're the 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 meta point. I get, and I think you're correct. Um, I would just say though that um, if we're talking about this in terms of reality TV, uh, the most interesting character to watch on any reality television show is the most narcissistic, right? The person who creates their own reality episode by episode and is only undermined when the real world imposes on them, like they get arrested for tax evasion or something, right? We, we love to watch them implode in real time because they are literally in denial about what's happening around them often, right? Um, those are the, those are the characters that the hardcore viewers of reality television most like to watch, um, because there's a, there's a sort of projection of their worst fears of bad things happening to them going on in front of them and they can't stop. It's literally like, you know, run, run in the horror movie, but they don't run. So I think in some ways, Trump has become that character. I mean, we know he's narcissistic. We know that he creates his own reality in the face of what's actually going on around him. Um, and he's trying to do that now with something he has absolutely no control over. Hence, he talks about the control he has, because the more he talks about how he's dominating something, the more you know he feels helpless. Um, so that, I think what that does is absolutely, this speaks to earlier when you were talking about people really wanting to interpret the polls in a different way. His hardcore viewers and supporters are going to double down on that and say, yeah, he's doing it. They're making these you know, videos that show him you know, as a running back scoring a touchdown, all this stuff. That's going to get more and more uh, for the next 28 days. That's all we're going to see from his hardcore supporters. Everybody else is still living in reality and and is tired of watching this show. And I think that's why his little video snippets are having are going to have a, a bad effect on the rest of the, the people who aren't already his hardcore supporters. Because we're tired of this character. We kind of want him, you know, taken off the show. I mean, that's... Well, I, so I was wrong on one prediction on Friday, but I want to stand by another, which is <clears throat> that um, barring a, a downturn, if he, if he doesn't experience, if he, his recovery continues apace, um, then he's he's going to present himself as sort of this Ubermensch. She's the Superman who survived this thing. And you saw it in the video where he goes, maybe I'm immune, which demonstrates either that he has no understanding of the definition of the word immune or that he perceives himself to have some sort of constitution that is just better than yours. And so 
even CDC guidance suggests that unless you have a really, really bad case, like you're hospitalized for multiple weeks at a time, like 20 days is the maximum at which point you're you're contagious. And most of it is 10 days. So this is this is federal research. I mean, it's not like these are guidelines that just it's somebody made up. Those are real guidelines. So what's to stop him from going maskless to uh, to rallies in late October and, you know, so swimming through his own crowds and really just soaking up the adoration of his fans and demonstrating that he has survived it and you can too. I mean, is, that would be obnoxious and it's compatible with, I think, John's assessment that it would transform him into this caricature that he already is, but it would he would just really lean into that caricature of himself. Um, but I can totally picture that happening. I can't, I, I, what I can't picture him is 10, 20, 28 days all the way to the election, living like he is this contagious person and, you know, bowing out of the, of the race basically and not appearing at rallies and being very circumspect and, and uh, cautious about his, about his public behavior. I think he's going to just say, you know, I beat it. You can too. And this is what you can do once you beat it. The world is yours. Um, okay. okay. John, I, I have a, actually, I'm, my take is diametrically opposed to yours in that I think this has always been a reality show, as you say, that part I agree with. I think what's happened is we're getting, um, but reality shows are universally fake um, to, to a heavy degree, um, varying degrees in different shows, but fake. And even reality TV fans acknowledge this to some extent. It's like wrestling. Uh, they, they like it anyway knowing the drama is manufactured. What I think has happened is that we've now gotten a glimpse of the man, not the character, actually. What what yesterday's um, sort of production scenario back at the White House looked like to me was a behind-the-scenes shot. Um, it wasn't reality. It wasn't the normal reality TV stuff. This was, this was we watched them sort of uh, how, how, the, how the sausage is made kind of moment. Um, and I think that is equally damaging. But I think that was what he slipped into. We saw this genuinely insecure guy in a very perilous situation trying to produce this reality show. And I think that is the the sort of thing that that rocked him. Or that okay, could you, know, him. you know, uh, I think you're right. And I'm saying this because I, I'm now uh, dating myself Back 40 some odd years, uh, my college roommate Todd Lindbergh and I came up with this game. Uh, we called the One Minute Intellectual. And the One Minute Intellectual was based on a, a very popular business book of the moment called The One Minute Manager, which was a sort of like, you know, how do you, I, I never actually read The One Minute Manager, but, you know, sort of like millions of copies were sold. So the One Minute Intellectual was the, you come up with some grand theory about something like totally grand theory, unsupported by any evidence. And then the question was, how long could you defend it before it fell completely apart where somebody said, you know, nah, that's probably, you got this totally wrong. So I am now calling one minute intellectual on myself. I am wrong. Abe is right. Uh, my theory was I like this grand, game. Grand, grand and foolish. And, uh, and I got a, and I got to back off it uh, before I really. Wait, handle, no, handle wait. we need a forensic analysis of why you think you're you're wrong here. Well, I think I think Abe's right that I, I was trying to come up with this dichotomy between uh, reality show and reality or soap opera or whatever. And that, in fact, yeah, the idea is that there was a reality show and now it has been destroyed by reality. 
the reality show is there's 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 COVID, but uh, Trump and the White House pret- are, are basically pretending like there isn't COVID, except when people say you're not taking it seriously, in which case they say, oh, yeah, we're doing this and this, and we're doing this, warp Operation Warp Speed, and we're doing that, we're doing the other thing. And then suddenly a 74-year-old man gets a, a deadly virus, and not only he, but but I don't know how many people now, 10, 12, 14 people who were in his proximity get it. Some of the and, White House staff have now tested uh, yeah, and, and Yeah, and like the, the actual like, yeah. housekeeping, right. Yeah. Um, so it's like when Snooki got pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just ruined the show. Go. There you go. Okay. Now, um, the one thing I will say about your scenario, Noah, is that it depends on him not getting sicker, which could be the case, but not. And I, 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 I hesitate saying this because it sounds cold-blooded or exploitative or something, but one of the other people who has gotten it better not die because if anybody who was part of this outbreak dies he can't do anything except go to the funeral and keep his mouth shut and just pray that you know he is not run out of you know america on a rail so that and that's it, what i would say yeah and it will have um reverse destroyed his message of we need not fear this Right, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and God knows this is the last thing that anybody should uh, hope for, wish for, or even, you know, anticipate. But, um, and, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of, you know, there are 7 million cases of COVID in the United States or something like that, and 200,000 deaths. So the math doesn't exactly add up to it is necessary, it's necessarily the case that one of these people uh will 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 contract it so you know it, so severely but it could happen i know we have heard nothing about the first lady we have no idea what condition the first lady is well, in. He, didn't he claim the other day that she was doing someone said that she was doing well responding well i don't know I did. the person that i'm on uh watch for right now is chris christie yeah, and we have not heard. He's asthmatic. He's overweight, and he checked himself into hospital. He a, a local reporter touched base with him yesterday and said he sounded a little raspy. He's not knocked down. He's not. He's knocked down. He's not knocked out. Um, but he's in a real high risk area. And and about, there's been strikingly little information on his condition. This whole story started because Hope Hicks contracted coronavirus. We have heard nothing about her condition. Now she's very young. I mean, she's not. I don't think she's even thirty yet, or if she or she's just thirty. So. It is unlikely that she would be somebody who would very unlikely that she is somebody who would who would be you know hit really hard. But we're not getting ameliorative reports about a lot of these people, and so uh, or Bill Stepien, and so I we just don't know, and that is politically, personally, morally, spiritually, psychically very very damaging and dangerous to the president. You can say at this moment on the fifth, 28 days from the election, if everybody gets better and nothing gets worse with Trump and all of that, um, he can move on from this moment in an effort to change the narrative and, and, and all of that. But he is still at this moment, like this notion that he, uh, and, and at this moment, he is down close to nine in the national polls. 
And that's just the fact of it. Um, and if he was going to change the storyline, as Christine said at the very beginning of the podcast, uh, he would have had to change the storyline by inhabiting an entirely different set of ideas from the ones he inhabited. And I don't know if that would have worked, to be honest. It's like when uh, people find this very difficult. When Jimmy Carter in 1980 said that he had learned more about the Soviet Union in the previous week than he had realized when when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan or whatever it was, that made him look foolish because, of course, there had been 60 years of history or whatever it was of the Soviet Union's depredations and monstrous behavior that he had ignored. If Trump said, I really understand now, this is really serious, it's like, oh, you mean when when we hit 100,000 deaths, you didn't understand it then? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm, I don't know how he threads that needle. And some weird efforts to thread the needle by people around him. I heard Sarah Sanders saying this yesterday on, on Fox News that uh, now he got the he got it and Biden didn't. So he's really been better. Uh, he's, he's much better situated to respond to COVID than, than Biden. Now, that's an interesting spin for people who are drunk on the Trump, you know, on Trump ale. Um, but how that hits the ear of, of anybody else is, uh, to me, is kind of a great mystery. And again, that's where we come to this politically. If the meltdown is happening, it is because the people who were either on the fence or even lightly supportive of him are going, I just can't anymore. And I don't even know if it's moral or if it's, it's more like, I think the feeling that everybody who is not on the Trump train must have had at some point this weekend or yesterday, which is, I just, I can't take this anymore. I can't, I, I can't, this can't go on. You know, I, I, I can, my heart can't take it. Like my, 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 and my ADHD can't take it. My, my perspective on the world can't, th- this person has to get out of my line of vision. He's, he's obscuring everything. Uh, and I'm not even talking here, as I keep saying, I'm incredibly grateful uh, for uh, the, the judges. I, the, the Mideast policy stuff is a, is, a, is a phenomenal accomplishment we'll be talking about for decades. But I feel like I can't breathe and you know, obviously, we're much more besotted and 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 you know, and sort of uh, sort of in the amniotic fluid of of politics more than other people. But um, that I think is is maybe what explains this, both after the debates and with the coming of the virus. Like I just just do I have do I does this have to go on like this? I'm just so tired. And this is a story. This isn't an event. What's what's transpired, you know, since Friday is something that breaks through to every last person in America. Low information voters, nonpartisan Americans, people who don't who who could care less about politics. This saturates all the way through. This is this. this, There is no bigger story, domestic story than this. Now, for people who are. who are not low information voters, but high information voters and people who are really seriously involved in politics, I want to talk to you about our second sponsor today, 
caucusroom.com. Because look, if you've tried to share your political opinions on social media lately, you know it can be a frustrating experience between the anger, the virtual shouting, and even fake accounts. It seems like civil conversation is a thing of the past. Luckily, now there's caucusroom.com, a social media network exclusively for conservatives. Caucus Room is an online community for conservatives to gather, encourage, and engage locally. Only real people who are verified conservatives can become Caucus Room members, but Caucus Room will never share your information with anyone ever. The sign-up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives, no bots or trolls. Caucus Room allows you to engage with your neighbors. You have no idea how many conservatives are hiding in your neighborhood. It's a great way to get engaged on issues where you can make the biggest difference locally. At Caucus Room, you can participate in live virtual meetings that are so secure, the platform played host to over a dozen virtual Republican Party conventions this year. You can also share news, jokes, and find ways to get involved with causes near you, all without fear of Silicon Valley overlords stopping you. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and make a difference. That's caucusroom.com, C-A-U-C-U-S-R-O-O-M.com. Thank you to Caucus Room for sponsoring the Commentary Podcast. Um, now let's go to COVID, uh, one final thing on COVID. Uh, colleges are closing. All we hear, we heard about the whole freak out about colleges and virtual people knowing that they're not letting people onto campus and all of this. And there's been this rash of cases and uh, somebody did a tally uh, of the cases on college campuses and the result. And this gets to the whole question of cases as a metric. 70,000 cases reported on college campuses since the beginning of September. Three hospitalizations. Let me repeat that. 70,000 cases, three hospitalizations. What we're hearing about is an increase in the caseload. The caseload is increasing, the caseload is increasing, the caseload is increasing. Hospitalizations are going down. Deaths are going down. So uh, we're about to have a second lockdown of a limited partial lockdown in New York City based on increased cases. We have a lot of panic about increased cases. The cases don't seem to be generating anything remotely comparable to what happened in the spring, which is that Cases were followed by people, you know, we lived in, those of us who lived in New York, we heard sirens all night, every night for, for weeks and weeks on end. None of that is happening. Abe, what do you make of it? Um, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, that's the same thing that happened in, was July or so when there was this national um, spike in cases there was some accompanying spike in um, deaths, but but even then, um, hospital outcomes, aside from also fewer hospitalizations, but hospital outcomes are so much better um, as they are now. Um, you know, this again, this is the 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 same contributing factors uh, that we that everyone talks about, which which are. Um, the population getting the virus is different. They're not as as uh, frail and um, at risk as as those who initially got it. The treatments are better, and there is some possibility that people are getting a smaller um, viral load by virtue of the fact that they are wearing masks 
or many of them have been wearing masks and distancing. And there's this weird geographic component that you've all lived in talked about on our show a few maybe a month month and a half ago where the the real explosion of cases is in places now like the upper midwest and the plain states which didn't have their outbreaks it seems like you just you have no choice but to have an outbreak right geographically well and and the, the the challenge going forward i would think is that we're what we seem to be doing is we're still in the mindset of spring particularly in new york where the the policy appears to be similar to the one that California has adopted for you know uh, energy consumption, and we're going to be having rolling blackout style closures, what in perpetuity, and those don't necessarily work. I mean, as many people will point out, closing things down by zip code does nothing unless you actually monitor who's coming in and out of those neighborhoods. Um, if you really want to do those kinds of lockdowns, you have to be pretty intense about enforcing the boundaries of the lockdown, not just shutting down some schools and restaurants and in, in where two blocks over everything is open. So I don't think the rolling blackout mentality is the way we should should approach this going forward. Um, more targeted, sort of thoughtful lockdowns of the kinds of places we know to in, encourage super spreading uh, because of either ventilation or crowding, those sorts of things. You're shutting down nightclubs uh, in a certain uh, city for a couple weeks if we found you know a breakout starting is one thing, but closing schools down when two blocks over there are open, it makes no sense at all. It's, it's a weird strategy, if it is indeed even a strategy. Well, once again, we'll see what everybody's attitude is on November 4th or November 5th. And then we will know just how uh what the whether there is a political component to this that we uh some of us suspect that there is and with that we will bid you adieu until tomorrow with some kind of a debate preview we will all be behind plexiglass when we do it uh for abe christina no i'm john Podhoritz. keep the candle burning